0: from the heart of our nation's capital here's family research council president tony perkins
1: welcome to washington watch i am joseph backholm sitting in for tony so glad that you are with us quick reminder there are primary elections tomorrow in both alaska and wyoming if you live there make sure you vote and if you need a voter guide go to ivoterguide.com to get the details also I hope you'll plan to join us in standing for life at FRC and FRC Action's Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. At the summit, you'll hear from guests like Sam Brownback, Dr. Ben Carson, Oz Guinness, Mike Huckabee, Dr. Albert Muller, Ali Beth Stuckey, and so many more. This year's summit will be held September 14th through the 16th at First Baptist Atlanta. You can register for the summit. It's now open. Registration is now open. Visit PrayVoteStand.org slash summit for all the details and to register we look forward to seeing you there today on the program the department of justice released the warrant that was used to search president trump's miralago home a 20-year department of justice attorney will share his thoughts with us on how that warrant on what that warrant was and how the department of justice has handled the entire miralago matter also today marks one year since the Taliban retook Kabul, Afghanistan. What has life been like in Afghanistan since then? Is there any hope that it will ever get better? We'll talk about that today. Also, today marks the 10 year anniversary of the day a man walked into the Washington DC offices of Family Research Council with a loaded gun and a backpack full of chicken sandwiches intending to kill as many people as possible. Thanks to the heroic efforts of Leo Johnson, no one was killed that day. We'll talk about God's protection, Leo's heroics, and the cost of discipleship as well on the program today. But first, our headlines. As I mentioned, today is the one-year anniversary of the Taliban retaking control of Kabul, Afghanistan. Republican members of the House Foreign Affairs Committee investigated the Biden administration's evacuation from Afghanistan, and they released their results yesterday. The report notes that the planning and execution of the withdrawal were so disorganized that even First Lady Jill Biden's office was forced to go outside normal channels in efforts to evacuate people from the country. The office of Vice President Kamala Harris was forced to do the same. Could this report provide a blueprint for further investigations? How should we feel about the end of the United States 20-year, $1 trillion commitment? to Afghanistan. Joining me now to discuss this is U.S. Representative Greg Stubbe. He's a member of the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He is also a baller on the softball diamond. He represents the 17th Congressional District of Florida. Congressman Stubbe, welcome back to Washington Watch.
2: Hey, thanks for having
1: me. Good to see you. Now, you're on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Tell us about the report that studied the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, obviously it was a complete failure from the beginning to end. And to this day, as you and I sit here and have a conversation, there's still Americans trapped in Afghanistan. The last time Secretary Blinken was before the committee, uh, he highlighted 36 or 40 or 50, wasn't sure. And then there's been 800 or so that they brought back. They don't even know how many are still trapped, but they do know that we have American citizens who want to be back in America. Who's going to blame them? uh that are still trapped in afghanistan behind enemy lines and we're dealing with the taliban to negotiate their return or to even find out where they are. It's a complete failure of leadership by the Biden administration. You alluded to it, but when we take the majority back in November and get the gavels in January, there's going to be a real investigation where we have subpoena power, the ability to do depositions, and all of that in the Department of Defense in a classified setting, which we don't have the power to do right now, to get the real answers to the American people of the failures of the Biden administration in Afghanistan.
1: Representative Stuby, you mentioned there an unknown uh, number of Americans who remain there. Are they effectively hostages of the Taliban?
2: We haven't gotten any information from Blinken when we ask him that question. We know that there are Americans that want to get out of the country, um, but we don't know any details. And it's fuzzy what details state has in their possession, uh, these people's contact information. The Taliban's taken over the entire country. We don't have assets on the ground anymore. So there's no real ability to communicate with anybody there in Afghanistan. uh, And they've shut down all communication structures. So uh, I would love to get more answers. I think Republicans would like to get more answers that the the American people want to know what's going on in Afghanistan, that we've left Americans there. And we're just not getting answers from this administration. And the mainstream media is just not going to talk about it because, it shows how poor the leadership is from the White House and from the President Commander in Chief Joe Biden.
1: Your colleague, your Representative Michael McCall, he's the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, was on CBS's Face the Nation yesterday. Here's what he had to say about the intelligence
3: reports from Afghanistan prior to the withdrawal. The intelligence community got it right. So there's no failure on the intelligence side, nor uh, the Pentagon. They called it right. The problem was the White House and and State Department putting their head in the sand, not wanting to believe what they were saying, and therefore not adequately planning.
1: Do we agree that this was a political failure rather than an intelligence failure?
2: Well, it absolutely was a political failure. We won't know that if there was an intelligence failure until we have the gavels and have an ability to do a classified investigation on the intelligence that they didn't didn't have. And when they had it, And when they knew what they knew and at what point they transferred that information to the White House and what point DOD made their decisions. But you just know from looking at general public information that you could see the Taliban taking over territories and making their way to Kabul. And it wouldn't take anybody with a reasonable amount of military knowledge and experience to realize what was happening and that actions needed to be taken to either get people out safely long before the Taliban got to Kabul, or to put up defensive posture to keep the Taliban from getting there in the first place.
1: With respect to the non-investigation, by any standard, the withdrawal from Afghanistan is one of the worst foreign affairs developments in, uh, maybe the worst foreign affairs development in modern U.S. history and one of the worst in American history. And uh, to the extent that Congress has not officially investigated that, uh, certainly not the majority party, but has spent a significant amount of time on things like January 6, I think it illustrates the fact uh, that in Washington, D.C., we often ask questions when we think the answers will be politically convenient. But uh, if we don't think the answers are going to be helpful to us, we aren't going to ask the question, which means we're not always interested in just improving. uh, We're interested in winning. Now, Representative McCall also had this to say about the interaction between the Intelligence Committee and the State Department.
3: There are so many mistakes. The biggest one, Margaret, for me having lived through it, we're, you know, being in the classified space, listening to the uh, intelligence community tell the story about this is going to be imminent, it's going to fall sooner rather than later. The military said it, told us the same thing. And then we went to state and they paint in the White House a very rosy picture. There's a disconnect between you know, intelligence on the ground and what the White House is doing.
1: Representative Stubbe, why would the State Department, the White House, reach a different conclusion than the intelligence community on this issue?
2: Well, because clearly they didn't want to hear what the intelligence community was telling them was happening and, quite frankly, didn't want to pay any attention or put any effort into doing the things that they needed to do to take leadership over the situation. Uh, That's absolutely what What occurred and it was a failure on the Biden administration to take the status and the changes that they needed to do to ensure that no Americans died and that we didn't leave Americans and assets to work with the American forces behind.
1: Is there anything about this report that surprised you?
2: Uh, Absolutely not. And I think there's more to come for the American people that they'll get that information when we take the House back.
1: Now, switching gears a bit, uh, Merrick Garland has finally spoken about the raid at Miralago. The Department of Justice has released the warrant that was used in that search. How is the information we are continuing to gather affecting your view of the Miralago raid?
2: Look, this is 100% a complete politicized weaponization of the Department of Justice that not only was going after a former president, but was going after the leading contender to take on Joe Biden in 2024. There, the, I believe this was a subterfuge. They just said that they had classified documents that they needed to get. Uh, Trump's lawyers have denounced that and said that's absolutely not true. Uh, he's the president. He has the ability to declassify documents before he left. Uh, all of this smells as a political weaponization of the DOJ, and they were looking looking for things that they could try to go after him on. Uh, They took his passports now, Trump is saying. Lawyers weren't allowed in there. The affidavit wasn't made public. Why haven't they made the affidavit, which is the legal basis for the warrant? Why haven't they made that public? Republicans have asked for that time and time again, and I don't think we're going to see that until we take the majority back and start subpoenaing records and documents from the DOJ.
1: Now, there are lots of allegations that uh, President Trump had been asked repeatedly for months for information that was classified. There are allegations that some of it has to do with nuclear codes. Haven't seen any support for that. But what's your response to this idea that President Trump was simply holding on to things, that he had been repeatedly informed he did not have a right to have it. Was in it was not secure uh, being in his home. It needed to be either at the National Archives or someplace else uh, more secure. What's your response to that?
2: There were 15 boxes of documents that they gave to uh, the National Archives. The lawyers said that. Um that whatever documents he had left, all they had to do was put an additional lock on it and it was fine. This is completely made up and fabricated information. If they don't have anything to hide, then make public the affidavit that was the basis for the search warrant uh, and let the American people decide for themselves.
1: Did you have any you've seen the warrant and there's been some discussion about whether this warrant uh, was um within the bounds of protocol for the department of justice do you have any opinion on that i believe
2: that it was illegal a warrant requires a least intrusive manner so if they if prosecutors or federal uh, DOJ is working with individuals and are, they're complying, obviously a warrant in, the, in when the president's not there, not complying with their lawyers after they've been working with them to get them whatever documents they want is not the least intrusive means to do a raid with 30 FBI agents at Mar-a-Lago. I think when all of the information comes before the American people and lawyers have the ability to analyze the, the least intrusive standard, they didn't meet that. Uh, they violated it, which would be against
1: the law. So Representative Stubbe, if they were to do this, if this is not a politicized effort, if this is a sincere good faith effort to get documents that belong at the National Archives or someplace more secure, how would the Department of Justice have done that?
2: Well, look at the documents that uh, Obama had, 30 million documents. Hillary Clinton whitewashed and acid washed a server, uh, and nothing was ever done to them. And they actually had information that was of a classified nature. We still don't know if classified documents were or weren't there. I'm certainly not going to take the information of the DOJ on face value. uh, And that's why it's so important for us to take the majority back in November to get the subpoena power of the committees to be able to investigate this fully and get the, the, the answers to the American
1: people. And to that point, Representative Stuby, the last question I have, do you think this issue, this dilemma that the public and the Department of Justice and the White House are now facing, can it be resolved in a way that gives the public faith that the Department of Justice is working on behalf of justice and not someone's political interests? The
2: only way that this can be resolved so the American people can know that they don't have a politicized, weaponized DOJ is for all the information to come before the American people. And they're hiding the affidavit. They're hiding information. They're not being transparent with the American people. So right there, people see it for what it is at face value. And if it takes Republicans to take the majority back to investigate it, then that tells you all the answers that you need to know that it's being a complete politicized weaponization of the DOJ.
1: And that is certainly the opinion of a lot of Americans right now. It took several days for the Department of Justice to say anything when they finally spoke. It uh, certainly didn't answer all the questions. We will continue to ask those questions. But Representative Stubbe, we thank you for coming on to discuss this with us today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. We are going to continue this conversation when we come back. Uh, The question many of us have is, because we're not Department of Justice attorneys, Is this normal, what the Department of Justice has done in this case? Well, coming up next, a 20-year Department of Justice veteran tells us whether the warrant and the raid followed Department of Justice norms or not. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. We'll be right back.
0: Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word?
4: Learn more at FRC.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Now, as we've discussed for much of the last week here on Washington Watch, last week's raid on former President Trump's residence in Florida was unprecedented, at least in the sense that no former president had been subject to a law enforcement raid before. But questions abound. How did the warrant come to be? Could such a warrant and raid be coordinated without the knowledge of the White House, as the White House is claiming? Joining me now to discuss this is Peter Thompson. He's a former U.S. assistant attorney with more than 20 years' experience in the Department of Justice. Peter, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me. Uh, We are excited to get your input on this because most of us, as much as we like to claim on social media, we are not experts in all of these things that come up to us. We haven't spent time in the Department of Justice. And so we don't know how things are done customarily. So we don't necessarily have the perspective on whether what's happening now is uh, within those customs. And so I want to start with the warrant, if we could. The warrant was released over the weekend. Uh, Anything in it surprise you?
5: Um, yes. Uh, in fact, uh, a number of things not only surprised me, um, but absolutely shocked me. Um, so in the warrant itself, and actually I don't think you're going to be able to see this. Um, so I made a list and if you can see it, um, right here, but this list, um, identifies every document that, um, the Department of Justice was was, hoping that they would find at the Mar-a-Lago residence. And let me just sort of go through what the warrant specifies as to the items that they were searching for. So the first was um, all documents with classified markings, but not only that, okay, the the warrant also was searching for all contents um, of, of any box in which a classified document was located. So in, in in addition to all contents of any box, the warrant was also seeking um, the contents of all other boxes that may have been in the same vicinity where those boxes were stored. Peter, now, this, frankly,
1: if, if this- I could, I, I'd, I'd like to clarify, because most of us have not written warrants and we certainly haven't read them and we haven't looked for warrants before. Why is what you described all contents in a box? Why does that surprise you? What's unusual about that?
5: Right. Well, as I said, it's, it's, it's shocking. So, the Fourth Amendment requires um, that a search warrant particularly describe um, the items that are being searched for. Okay. And it, it also requires that Um, The location be particularly described. And here we seem to have an an excessively overbroad warrant, one that is allowing the agents to go into uh, Mar-a-Lago, a a huge compound on 17 acres with over 50 bedrooms, over 30 uh, bathrooms. And the warrant is allowing the agents to go everywhere in in this um, compound with with, um, minor restrictions of where third third parties might actually be occupying. In addition to that, all outbuildings. Okay, so this is effectively, I mean, a small office building they're being allowed to search. Peter? And they're...
1: Yeah, and, and, and for the sake of time, I'm going to have to run through some of this too quickly. So I want to bottom sure. line this. And what it sounds like you're saying is that the warrant itself might be just overbroad. And if I'm understanding, uh, that means that the, everything seized, if a court found it to be uh, an in, inappropriate, uh, uh, an illegal search warrant, everything they seized could ultimately not be admissible. Is that correct?
5: No, that's correct. Particularly if they if they brought some charges against some individual, right. um, that the warrant is clearly clearly overly broad. It is clearly a fishing expedition. Um, it it allows them to seize almost every document they come in, in contact with, even documents that are not identified that are in the same vicinity. And these these are the type of warrants that courts have traditionally struck down as being unconstitutional in violation um, of Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure and in violation of the Fourth
6: Amendment.
1: Now, Peter, I want to give you a chance to respond to some statements from the White House. Spokeswoman Corrine Jean-Pierre had this to say over the weekend—
6: The president has been very clear, uh, and unequivocal about this, is that when it comes to law enforcement, matters, investigation, the Department of Justice has complete, complete independence, and he has said that during his campaign, he has said that as as president, we do not interfere, we do not get briefed, we do not get involved.
1: Peter, is the Department of Justice behaving in the way you would expect them to behave if they had complete independence?
5: No, I mean I, I I don't think so and and the reason I say that for number number of reasons one um it it, it is really disconcerting um and and raises a lot of red flags on how the department of justice went, went about this. For example, they they knew right they knew ahead of time that this search warrant would would have repercussions um throughout the country and, and, and throughout throughout the world actually. and knowing for example, that the magistrate that they went to, Um, had earlier recused himself on a case involving President Trump uh, because he didn't think he could be impartial. The same magistrate who posted publicly comments, um, you know, uh, against the the president, former president, attacking his morality, um, they chose to go to that magistrate. Uh, The fact that they chose to go to that magistrate when they could have gone to another magistrate that, uh, you know, um, I think there are two or three federal magistrates that that work in that part of the district of the Southern District of Florida. But the fact they chose to that magistrate to go to that magistrate, the fact that they executed and signed off on a fishing expedition type warrant um, raises a lot of red flags with me. And it leaves me with a question as to why, you know, why would they have done that?
1: One other question, and we only have about a minute. Uh, the White House has repeatedly said they had no knowledge of this happening. I, is that typical, that something of this magnitude would be done by the Department of Justice without the White House even being aware that it was going to happen?
5: Now, I find it very difficult to believe that that somebody at the Department of Justice would not have informed the White House. The, the White House is not in the, you know the chain of command, but certainly this is a a, a, a an you know unprecedented a search warrant with 30 agents or more with with mm-hmm. assault rifles on the former president of the United States um someone who's all but declared that he's going to run for president against against the incumbent president and for the white house not to be informed by the attorney general's office is is beyond belief it's just something i can't believe and if, if i can go further um you know in the white house or in the justice department typically with every administration yeah. There's always a White House liaison that works there. And the White House liaison is, is a liaison with the White House. Peter. And the office of. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, you know, we
1: are out of time. We need another hour. So we're going to have to do this again because I really do want to go through uh, everything that you have about the war, but we are out of time. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. And we will revisit that. But coming up next, what's life like in Afghanistan one year after withdrawal? Stay with us. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in Kentucky. One year ago, we watched in horror as the nation of Afghanistan was given back over to the medieval rule of the Taliban. While Afghanistan fell out of the headlines, the challenges for the people there have persisted and in many ways intensified. What is life like in Afghanistan one year after the Taliban Retook control, and what has this meant for Christians in the country? Joining me to discuss this is Jeff King. He's the president of International Christian Concern. Jeff, welcome back to Washington Watch.
8: So great to be here, Tony or Joseph. Thank you.
1: Tell us about what the last year has been like for the people of Afghanistan.
8: Yeah, well, Joseph, it's been it's been an interesting ride. I mean, it uh, you know things were ramping up before the fall. And then there was the absolute crisis when everyone's trying to rush out the gate, you know, through the gates and on the air air base and trying to get out and then the bombs. So after that, it was deep panic. It was real intense panic because everyone knows who these guys are. And um, so since then, it's it's a mix of things. So the the pressure's come down somewhat. um, And yet. I mean, what's happened is, you know, the Taliban's been skulking around, they're asking, they're interviewing, knocking doors to doors. The door, they're calling some of the Christians saying, we know who you are. Uh, some have been killed, not many. Um, but the good news is that also look like all mafias, and that's what the Taliban is like, all mafias, they're starting to devour each other. And it's provided a little bit of breathing spray, breathing space for the Christians. But there's a lot of them that have left. We're taking care of a lot of them outside of the country. So that's kind of the thumbnail sketch.
1: That is good news to hear that uh, perhaps the internal fighting is creating space uh, for them to just be less oppressive to to everyday people. Now, ABC News chief foreign correspondent shared a report on what the situation in Afghanistan is like. I want to play one of his remarks and then get your response.
5: I think the biggest impact, though, is in terms of hunger. Uh, We visited, I mean, there were tragic scenes, this maternity hospital that was packed with severely malnourished babies, many of them two to three in a bed, and the numbers of people waiting to get in are much greater than the numbers of people admitted and taken care of. And the trend here is much worse because the amount of aid is going down and the demand, the humanitarian crisis is getting worse.
1: Jeff, is Mm. that consistent with your information as well?
8: Yeah, no, it is a very tough situation. Look, these guys—all they were qualified to do uh, was be was to be dangerous, extremely radical, and to kill. They really have no experience governing. It's a complete mess. Uh, the U.S. propped up the place, so it's a very it's a very tough spot. We're providing a lot of aid inside too, which you have to be very tricky, of course, to get that in and keep the people safe. But the, yeah, that's going on.
1: You mentioned specifically the situation for the Christian community there in Afghanistan. I know many were, perhaps all were, trying to leave as the Taliban retook control. I know many did leave. Do you have any reliable data about how many Christians remain in the country?
8: Well, the majority remain in the country, so lots have left, but the majority remain. And it's interesting, Joseph. I've uh, I've talked to a number of guys that have left and. You know, we were probably six months before the fall. We were starting to to pull people out. We were putting money in because we knew what was coming. Um, and so so any number of these leaders I've talked to, we've got them over here. And a number of them, honestly, they want to go back. You know, they, they kind of left in a panic. The, the opportunity was there. The worst was assumed. But their heart's in Afghanistan, and they want to get back. Uh, but the majority are still there. But look, any, any Christian in Afghanistan, almost 100 percent, they're all— converts from Islam. And so that means they're apostates. They're under a death sentence under under uh, the Taliban.
1: Now, when you say they want to go back, is that evidence that perhaps it's not as bad in the country as they feared it might be?
8: Boy, that's a great question. I think the real evidence is the heart uh, and the burden they feel for the brothers and sisters, for their calling, uh, and just to, to make a difference, to be used by God in the place that they were given.
1: Jeff, you mentioned the fact that there's internal fighting within the Taliban, that's not necessarily surprising, there really is no honor (laughs) among thieves, right? And that might be creating an opportunity, but long term, is there any sense that this could get better, that the Taliban ultimately might be defeated by either themselves or forces within the country? Do you have any any sense of what the long term uh, situation is in that country?
8: Well, I could, a- I could answer that on a couple different levels. It's interesting. So first of all, Afghanistan, it's, you know, it's the graveyard of empires, right? They, no one's been able to rule it. And I don't think internally it can be ruled. Uh, but it's interesting uh, if I could make a prediction on what's going to happen to the people of faith. You know, these are, I said this be- just before the fall, you look at Iran when the Ayatollahs took over. It couldn't have been darker. Uh, and they, you know, Joseph, for 30, 40 years, they've strangled, tortured, murdered the church. And all that time, the, the yield of that, of all that effort, was that the church has exploded in Iran and Islam is dying. It's dead among the young. Um, so many people, they cannot, they cannot lock up enough people. They can't stop the movement, the, the massive movement towards coming to Christ. So this is what's happened. This is the beauty of persecution.
1: And that, of course, is the legacy of the Christian church, which was birthed in an environment not yes. unlike the the Taliban in Afghanistan, where the, 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 the Romans were not fond of the Christians and they treated them just as yeah. harsh, harshly as the Taliban uh, would now. But in about 30 seconds, Jeff, how can the, yeah. ch- the church here be praying?
8: Well, I mean, first of all, for protection, but beyond that, so first of all, and if they can give to help their brother and sister, but pray for the boldness for their hearts to be burdened by the lost around them. And that's a dangerous thing because it can cost them their life, but pray that the Lord would use them to bring light to the darkness. Jeff King, thank you so much for your time today. Bless you. Peter, in Acts chapter 5, after
1: he had been released from prison, he did not pray for protection. He prayed for courage. And we will pray the same for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Stay with us. General Jerry Boykin will join us next with more about Afghanistan when we come back here on
7: Washington Watch. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at standcourageous.com.
6: With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAN to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAN to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like minded community. Text S T A N D to 67742. That's STAND to 67742.
4: Are you a university student? Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Earlier in the program, I told you about the Prevote Stand Summit that will be happening in Atlanta, Georgia, this September 14th through the 16th. If you are a high school or university student, you are invited to join a special free worldview session as part of the Pray, Vote, Stand Summit that will be happening on Friday, September 16th, from 4 to 7 p.m. In that session, you'll get an introduction to worldview and also the opportunity to ask anything for 90 minutes with worldview experts from around the country about today's most controversial issues. Critical race theory, LGBT issues, how to engage With love and truth, all your hard questions, we've got biblical answers for them. We hope that you will be there if you are a high school or college student in particular. Register for free online at prayvotestand.org slash summit or by calling 877-372-2808. Now, as we've discussed, today marks the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul following the Biden administration's withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. This after 20 years and $1 trillion invested in the country. The Taliban have held control of Afghanistan for a year, though the suspension of foreign aid and freezing of their foreign funds has spiraled the country into an economic crisis. Joining me now to discuss this as well as his reflections on the 10-year anniversary of a gunman's attack on FRC is retired Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin. He's a founding member of the Army's elite Delta Force and Family Research Council's executive vice president. General, good to see you today. Good to be with you. Now, with respect to Afghanistan, before we get into the... Um, military component of this. Uh, that's a subject, the, the persecution of the church in Afghanistan is a, is a central part of a book that you've written. Tell us a bit
9: about that. Yeah, it's called Heroic Faith, and I am just one of three authors of this, and uh, the other two ladies that were part of this uh, have a lot of experience, especially Leela Gilbert, uh, has a lot of experience in the Middle East, and uh, Ariel Del Turco was uh, also very experienced in terms of uh, religious persecution, and so we wrote this book to give a very clear picture of what's happening, primarily to Christians, but not exclusively Christians, but uh, to to give a vivid description of what's happening to Christians all over the world as the persecution against Christians is growing, and uh, and there's. You know there are more things happening today than ever in the history of the world that uh, really are nothing but persecution of Christians. You know, and, and in the in the last
1: um, in the last segment, we talked to Jeff King from International Christian Concern, and, and one of the the hopeful parts of that story um, is the idea that the church is flourishing. <laughs> he was he was referred specifically to Iran. But the, the the legacy of the Christian church in the darkest moments is when the spirit moves most intensely and people see uh, God move in ways that he doesn't when when we're comfortable. And so I think there is a, a silver lining in all of this. That being said, we have a duty and an obligation to stop suffering, to stop injustice, and that is certainly evidence of that.
9: Stand up against evil yeah. is basically what we're commanded to do. That's exactly right. Now—
1: you and I spoke last summer uh, when this a- withdrawal from Afghanistan was happening. Yeah. Uh, you were, uh, how do I say it? You were disturbed by what you saw. You have a lot of experience moving troops around, dealing with military operations. You now have the benefit of one year's hindsight. We've, we've learned a bit. You had a chance to reflect. Do you feel differently today than you did watching the events
9: a year ago? If anything, I feel worse. I, I'm—, I'm... I'm embarrassed, first of all. Uh, secondly, I, I'm I'm very upset about what we did as a nation because it violated so many standing ethos, you know, American ethos, American values. And, uh, but I believe that this is going to go down in history as the greatest foreign policy failure in the history of this country.
1: Now it doesn't sound like you feel any better about the way that that operation was conducted. Do you have a different perspective on what caused it now?
9: Now I won't say my perspective has changed. Any, uh, I will say that I have more information to support the way I felt when it, it was over. And restate that for us. And so, what yeah. is that? First of all, there was no planning for this. The the plans there were some. There was some minor planning done in the spring. And then they didn't get back to it until, like, the week before they were going into Afghanistan. Secondly, uh, the president ignored the advice of the people that are there to do just that, advise him. He ignored the advice of of, of his intelligence community, for example, as well as the military and the State Department. And he wanted to do it his way, and that uh, was absolutely wrong from the beginning. Uh, They ignored... uh, what was happening on the ground there, where the military and the intelligence community were telling them that the picture is not the way you see it. Here's what's really happening. And, by the way, the Taliban will take over sooner rather than later. That was their word, sooner rather than later. And uh, and he ignored all of that. And uh, it it cost us uh, our reputation. It cost us our relationships with our allies. And it cost us uh, what I think is the, the worst of all of this, it caused us as a nation to violate our own standing values, the values upon which this nation was was founded when we left those Americans behind and people that we had made a pledge to, a promise to, you work with us, we'll bring you out when we go home. Now, General Boykin, at the beginning of the show,
1: I talked to Congressman Stubbe, and I asked him this question, and I'll ask you as well, because there's this... Um, The intelligence that the White House and the State Department received uh, said one thing, and then the picture that the State Department and the White House painted seemed to be very different, much more positive, much rosier perspective on on what the situation in Afghanistan was. Do you have a sense for – why that would happen what's is this a game of telephone where they misunderstood or they just didn't like the implications of the intelligence they were receiving and so they just said we're gonna we're gonna see this in a different way
9: yeah when I was the deputy undersecretary of defense for intelligence I, I learned a lot about this very topic and that uh, you, you you if you politicize intelligence it's only a matter of time until you're going to pay a tremendous price for it. You cannot politicize intelligence. If you don't like the answer from the intelligence community, that's that's tough. But you don't get the intelligence community to say what you want them to say or to tell you what they want you want them to tell you. That doesn't work.
1: Now, presumably... The Biden administration thought there was going to be some kind of political advantage to being the ones to withdraw. Because in fairness, there were a lot of people who wanted Afghanistan. They'd been talking about that for a long time. President Trump had wanted out of of Afghanistan. President Obama certainly talked about it. The idea of getting out of of Afghanistan is something that had, in principle, bipartisan support, right? So if his motivation was to be the one who got it done— Has
9: there been any kind of benefit to the White House from being the one who got it done? Uh, The benefit is that he had the opportunity to kill Ayman al-Zawahiri in Kabul, Mm -hmm. where he was staying in his sanctuary. Now, that's being a little bit facetious. What I would say to you is uh, the Europeans wanted us to stay, and the president had a false narrative about uh, what was at stake here. It was either we go in and withdraw right now in this hurried fashion, without proper planning, without a lot of logistics, and we'll leave them $83 billion worth of materiel, or I have to put thousands and thousands of Americans in there. Well, that wasn't the plan. The plan was, and what was requested, was 2,500 to be there with 6,000 European allies. And the Europeans wanted us to stay. They didn't want to pull out and and look at what we did to them. We left some of them high and dry as well and put them in a really bad situation. So I think the president was not truthful with the American public about what his options were. I also think that it's true, and I'll see if you agree with
1: this, that there any perceived political benefit President Biden could have had. By being the one who withdrew from Afghanistan and got us out of this perpetual war kind of a a situation was lost because of the execution of that. And in fact, because it was so generally seen as a debacle, as, as mismanaged, that that set the tone for his administration, really, because it was so early on that. He's he's underwater in almost every issue. Certainly, foreign policy is one of them. But do you agree that that really was the beginning of the end for the Biden administration, where the public just kind of lost confidence in his ability to to plan
9: and make decisions and and weigh the variables? Yeah, you don't have to be a military or diplomatic expert to know that you don't turn over a secure airfield like Bagram and then go to an airfield that you can't secure and that was proven by the fact that we lost 13 Americans there. You don't uh, you don't evacuate all of the military and then think about the civilians. No, the civilians go out first. And uh, there were a number of those kinds of things, that I think it, yes, I think it not only did it destroy his credibility as the commander-in-chief, but I believe that it was one of the stimulants for the decision by Vladimir Putin and probably by Xi, to do what they're doing right now, one being to go into Afghanistan and the other being to uh, to start harassing uh, Taiwan again. I think that his performance there in, uh, in Afghanistan was one of the stimulants for that. Last question on this topic. We were there for 20 years, spent a trillion
1: dollars. About 2,500 service members lost their lives in yeah. Afghanistan. There were another... 3,800 contractors who lost their lives in Afghanistan. Knowing what we know now, we look back. How should we think about the investment that the American people made in that country?
9: Why were we there? We were there to prevent uh, al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups from having a safe haven from which they could uh, execute another 9-11. And we kept that from happening for 20 years, for 20 years. Uh, unfortunately, just based on the fact that we know uh Zawahiri was in Kabul when we hit him with the drone strike we 've re- reversed all the gains uh, and we did that in less than a month. One final topic with you
1: um ten years ago today yep a a a a man a deranged man walked into this building in the yep. office of the family research council here in right. washington d c intent uh he was armed. He yep. had e- extra ammunition in his backpack as well as a bunch of sandwiches that he intended to throw at the feet, he later said, of the dead bodies that he hoped to to create. Uh, our friend and hero, Leo Johnson, yep. prevented that from happening. He was shot in the process, but uh, thanks to his heroic efforts, uh, no one died that day. Right. Ten years later, what are your reflections on that day?
9: Yeah, uh, my reflections are this. Uh, the majority of the people, when they're confronted with a fight-or-flight situation, they take flight. You know, it's the safer way. It's the it, it, it's just a human nature. Leo Johnson did just the opposite. He he chose the fight option. And uh, if you look at the video, and we, we showed it this morning here, it's awesome in that here was a guy that uh, was confronted with that situation, and he went straight at the shooter. No hesitation,
1: and we're playing this now for those who are watching on NRB TV. Yeah. Yes, how how he did that, but keep going.
9: Yeah. yeah, well, he just went straight at him, and that was uh, that was what saved probably a lot of people because that guy told the judge that he was here to kill as many people as possible, Floyd Lee Corkins, as many people as possible, and then he was, as you said, he was going to uh, smear a Chick Fil A sandwich on their on their face or on their feet or whatever it was. Uh, and that was at that time when uh, Chick-fil-A was under a lot of pressure because of their support for traditional marriage. And uh, Mike Huckabee had rallied Americans all over the country to go to Chick-fil-A. And, and, and they had the great biggest day they'd ever had in the history of Chick-fil-A. And, uh, and they, so that was going to be part of his statement.
1: He also explained why he targeted the Family Research Council. Let's play that in this statement. It's clip seven. And then uh, we'll give you a chance to respond to that.
5: Now, how did you, this building, this organization, did you, did you how did you find it? Did you, like, look it up online? Or how did you they know
9: what they, uh, Southern Poverty Law
0: lists, uh, anti-hate groups, found like, not online. Okay. I'm going to research on the website and stuff like
1: that. You hear him saying there that he went to the Southern Poverty Law Center, at all these hate groups, of course, yeah. which they list Family Research Council
9: as, uh very uh, erroneously, but is that still an issue today? Uh, very much so. They still have a hate map. And, and in fact, uh, the guy that shot Steve Scalise mm-hmm. a few years ago was also one who had been visiting the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center's hate map and website. And we we've never heard a word from the Southern Poverty Law Center, but guess what? You know, what goes around comes around, I guess, is the saying. At least it is where I come from and the state that you live in right now, by the way. But uh, if you think about it, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center 30 seconds. Okay, Southern Poverty Law Center has been sued by their own people for sexist behavior, sexual harassment, and racism. Now, you think about that. Ironic, isn't it? They ought to be on their own list. I- ironic, isn't it, that the uh, the ones trying to stop
1: the sexism and racism are being accused internally of that? Um, yeah. But we are again today. We're celebrating God's grace in, in protecting so many people and His c- promise to continue doing so. Yep. General, thanks for your time today. Good to be with you. And friends, thank you for being with us. It is a somber anniversary in significant ways, but a reminder that God is always good. He is always providing and he is always there when it's, when there is trouble, whether it's a shooter or whether we're in Afghanistan, wherever we are, he is there, which is why we can fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought
1: to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported